0: Take your Bibles and open them up to Psalm 28. And as we get started this morning, I want to ask you what you have asked from God lately. What have you asked recently? Has it been something big? Has it been several small things? What have you asked of Him Was your asking kind of a last resort? When you asked, did you feel like your chances were pretty good that he might actually answer? We're seeking this summer in our sermon series to find God in the middle. And so we're in the Psalms, and there's a lot of asking going on in the Psalms. We've seen some of it already. We've looked at some Psalms asking for forgiveness. This morning, the asking is more general. Psalm 28 is another of David's Psalms, and we're not exactly sure the occasion that caused these words to be penned facing some type of enemy situation, possibly fleeing from Saul. But there's a lot that we can learn from his asking, of how he found God in the middle of his asking. And so I want to ask you to stand, if you are able, for the reading of these nine verses. Psalm 28, the very words of God. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest, if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil, is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work, and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward, because they do not regard the works of the Lord, or the work of His hands. He will tear them down, and build them up. Ono- build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people, he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. May the Lord pour out his blessings. On the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. We've already prayed, so please be seated. Several questions we're going to let this psalm answer for us about our asking. Who do we ask? For what do we ask? How confident are we when we ask? And for whom do we ask? For for whose benefit are we asking? So look at verse 1. Who do we ask? Here's another time where you might say, well, gosh, that's obvious. We're we're asking God. We're, We're turning to Him. But is that honestly your first course of action When you're made aware of some need, is your first, most natural impulse to call to the Lord? Or are we usually calling to Him only after we've turned to a few other or several other places? Where do we turn for help? Often I first turn to me. How, what can I do to meet my own need? What can I do to fix my own problem? Or if I can't do it, maybe I know somebody else who can, and so I'm turning to them. Perhaps it's not even a solution that I'm, that I'm turning to first or focusing on first. Maybe my first most natural impulse is just to complain about whatever it is become bitter or angry. Or maybe the need is so great and the problem looming before you is so large and impossible looking that despair and depression set in. Maybe I'm not seeking a solution. Maybe I'm seeking something to numb whatever it is that's going on make me forget about the problem altogether see we might read that first verse and read it kind of quickly and and maybe we think in the back of our minds that yeah that's of course that's where we first turn but in truth turning to him is very often a last resort and it's only when we get really desperate that we do so I remember in a season of my life feeling really guilty where I sensed that I was really just turning to the Lord in prayer when I was desperate. And I don't remember who, which pastor, what it was, but it was one of those sort of zinger moments when in the midst of me feeling guilt and shame over only going to God when I was desperate for something. That I heard someone say, it's not that we should feel guilt or shame for only going to God when we feel desperate. The thing to be grieved over, the thing to be mourned, is how infrequently we sense our desperation. that if we were more readily aware of how truly desperate we are all the time, then there would be so much more prayer out of desperation. So when David calls to the Lord, and in time with repetition, I do think that a habit a more natural impulse can be developed, as it did for David, where, where calling to the Lord was more of a first step than a last resort. So when David calls to the Lord, in this instance, what is he asking for, point number two? He's asking for two things. He's asking for mercy, and he's asking for justice, and I think in your outline I put them backwards, but we're going to look at mercy first. Sometime recently, we looked again at the definition of mercy, that simple definition of not getting what you deserve. That's mercy. And so David admits right off the bat, he calls it what what it is. He says, don't give me what I deserve. He says, this is a cry for mercy. And in verse 3, he seems to be getting somewhat specific about what he wants God to not do. That is, don't drag me off with the wicked. So on some level, he knows that he deserves to be hauled off and punished with the wicked, or else he wouldn't say, here's my cry for mercy, don't do this, right? He gets it on some level that he should be punished with the wicked, with the workers of evil. Now, this gets interesting, and it's going to take a little unpacking, because on the one hand we've got David asking for mercy for himself, but for the wicked, for the workers of evil, he asks that they do get what they deserve. That's what he's doing in verse 4. All right? So that, that raises a few questions in my mind, uh, the first of which is this, is that even Right? Is that right to ask for mercy for yourself, but not for the wicked enemies around you? Hmm, that's a tough one. What do you think? Give me mercy, but, verse 4, give to them according to their work. And according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Several layers to this. First is this. If nobody gets what they deserve, then that makes mercy meaningless. If everybody gets off the hook, well, then it's not much of a hook, is it? That's one piece of it. It's also this big, huge piece of God's character. God who is holy and just and true and righteous. That means that if he says, that he's going to do something, then he has to do the something that he said. That if he says evil must be punished, the guilty cannot, must not, will not go free, then guess what? Evil has to be punished. The guilty cannot, must not go free. other thing to consider is the evil itself. What is this evil of which David speaks? Looks like from this psalm, there are two parts. The first part comes in the second half of verse three, All right? So here are these uh, wicked, these workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil in their hearts. All right, so this first element of their evil affects horizontal relationships, relationships with other folks. Right? To your face, oh, we're all good. We're good. Right? In their hearts, perhaps behind their backs, it's a different story. Perhaps at its, at its worst it is that I do intend evil for you. Right? But probably, much more likely, much more often is the case, I'm using you. We're all good. We're friends. I love you, man. And I'm just in this relationship for whatever I can get out of it. And I will use you and or abuse you if it means I get what I think I need. If I can benefit, if I can take advantage. So that's the first element of the evil is is relationships with other people. The second part of this evil is mentioned in verse 5. Give them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. Now, regard, that's a good word. That's a good word. Uh, They're not considering Uh, the Lord's works, the Lord's hand. It doesn't even cross their minds. Now, these might be really bad dudes doing really terrible things or they might be fine upstanding citizens but if their goodness and morality isn't coming out of a regard for the Lord it's just for their own practical purposes assuring for themselves a good life if I live a good life for their own good ends and not out of a regard for the Lord, then the Lord doesn't want it. So in essence, these two parts, we've got evil toward others, we've got a a lack of regard for God. Gosh, if that doesn't sound like the two halves of the great commandment. When Jesus summed it up for the inquirer, what two things did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength sounds kind of like regarding and love your neighbor as you love yourself now what makes the difference for david how would it how would we come to the place where he's asking for mercy for himself but not for other folks Now remember, on some level, he knows, right? He knows he deserves to be lumped in with those workers of evil or else he wouldn't label this a cry for mercy. What makes the difference for David? A couple of things, I think. First thing that I think makes a difference are those lifted hands in verse 2, right? To you, I lift up my hands, right? So what, what do open and lifted hands represent what what do they communicate all right uh, they're they're empty right i got nothing to offer okay surely david remembers forever how he came to the throne in the first place how samuel was there looking through all of his other brother's Expecting it to be anybody but David. The youngest, the least important in human estimation. So I'm sure that on one level these empty hands are saying, "Um, I've got nothing here. (laughs) What else do they say? They also say, I give up. Need help. Open, empty hands, often re- expect to receive something. Think about a, a small child, right? Small child comes to you with hands together. What are they expecting? But you're going to put something in those hands. Or if they come like this, they're expecting to be picked up. There's an expectation of receiving something. So I think that's part of what's making the difference for David. The other part, I think, is, has something to do with this regarding in verse 5. The way that he states verse 5, he is separating himself. He is differentiating himself from the ones that he's asking get the justice. Verse 5, he says... They do not regard. And by saying that they do not, he's implying that he does. I am regarding the work of the Lord. Now, the ultimate work of the Lord, the ultimate work of his hands for us to regard and to consider is, of course, the finished work of the Lord Jesus, right? who worked, who lived a perfectly righteous life for us, who perfectly loved his father, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and perfectly loved his neighbor as himself, even to the point of laying down his life for his neighbor in the greatest demonstration of love. And then on top of all of that being our substitute, being our sacrifice, taking our punishment. Now, we... Living on this side of the cross, we know all about that in all of its glorious detail. But David didn't, at least not to that specific detail. But here's what David did have. David did already have a whole lot of hints. A whole lot of things pointing him to the fact that something was coming down the pike. See, he knew the account, Genesis 22, of Abraham taking Isaac up on the mountain and a substitute being provided. He knew that something died in the place of Isaac. And David was well acquainted with the sacrificial system of the tabernacle. How often sacrifices had to be made to atone for sin. How guilt was ceremonially transferred by the priest. From the priest through his hands to the head of the animal being sacrificed. He knew he needed help. And he knew help came from the Lord. Look at verse 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with song I give thanks to him. Y'all, that's the language of regarding. Regarding. That's the language of regarding. He regarded the works of the Lord in a way that the evildoers didn't. And that makes the difference for David. So the last little piece of this, the last little question still rumbling around in the back of my mind, well then, why not ask for mercy for everybody? That's a a really good question. And on one level, I think that we should. That ought to be our our very first impulse when we see those around us not loving God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, not loving neighbor as yourself, not regarding the works of the Lord, that, that we would pray, that we'd be moved to pray, oh, Lord, soften their hearts, open their blind eyes, There needs to be a deep awareness in each of us that the only reason we love him, the only reason we regard him and his work is that he did a supernatural work of grace in our hearts. He did it. He enabled it. Or else we wouldn't be giving him the time of day got to remember that if we would ever have an impulse to cry out for mercy for others oh lord cause them to regard your works so that you can be merciful to them too and and that is the key right if they're going to get mercy it's going to come through the process of they have Supernaturally, because of God's grace come to the place where they're regarding the work of the Lord. Where they're seeing it and sensing it and looking to it and exalting it and trusting in it like David did. But if someone appears to be Hardened in their lack of regard, in their total disregard for the Lord, then ultimately His justice will come. One way or the other, God will be glorified. He'll be glorified when He pours out grace and mercy that's been purchased by Christ. Or He will be glorified when He dispenses justice and and so maybe maybe that's the best idea for what our prayer should be like God glorify yourself God bring glory to yourself when it comes to these enemies over here Lord if, if you'll do it like you did for me by softening hearts and opening eyes glory But if not, Lord, you will still be glorified even in your justice. Number three, how confident are you when you ask? This is another one of those Psalms where where David's confidence seems to kind of be all over the place. Psalm 51 was like that a few weeks ago uh, in David's cries for forgiveness because at some points he was speaking like a forgiven man. And then in other places he was like, speaking like it's very much up in the air and and in doubt, and he wasn't sure what the outcome was going to be. Uh, He's doing that again somewhat in this psalm. Verse 1, he's not sure if God will hear or answer. Verse 3, he's afraid he'll get swept away with the wicked. But then, all of a sudden, verse 6, blessed be the Lord, he has heard. And then we've already seen the celebration in verse 7. So what is up with that? Did the Lord intervene that quickly? Before David could even finish writing his complete thoughts down in his journal, God showed up and fixed whatever was going on. Is that what happened? I don't think that's likely. I think it's much more likely that what happened here is what often happens in prayer, in the middle of our asking. See, that's part of this whole finding God in the middle thing. We'll find him not just at the, the completion of things when everything turns out rosy, but we'll actually find him when we're stuck in the middle and we don't know what the outcome's going to be. And so here's a, a very important principle about prayer, about our asking. Right? Our, our asking, our finding God in the middle is very often not related to the situation changing. But it's related to us changing. Right? That's what's going on in prayer nine times out of ten. It's not the immediate change of our situation, but the change of our hearts, change of us. And that change comes about when we do a couple of things, when we remember who God is, what he's already done in the past, what he's capable of doing in the future, in the present. And then that reassurance washes over us when we do that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's it's kind of silly to be so upset and be so anxious when I, when I remember, when I think about who he is. And David has done that through the course of this psalm. He remembered, he recounted, verse 1, you're my rock. Verse 3, you're holy. Verse 7, you're my strength and shield and helper. Verse 8, you're my strength. Again, you're my saving refuge. So our view of God affects our confidence, but also God's view of us can bolster our confidence as well. Did you pick up on that in verse 9 when we read through Uh, Verse 9 says, Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Some of your translations might say inheritance, and that's another good option. Other places in Scripture speak about his people being his treasured possession. He values us, we have worth to him very much like an inheritance does. Do we ask of him with that mindset? We're valuable to him. He treasures us. He views us as an inheritance. David wavered, right? He lacked confidence at times, but through his recounting and remembering both who God is and how God views us, The wavering subsides and it's replaced by confidence. Now, the final question about our asking is, for whom do we ask? Is our asking for our benefit only? Was David's asking for his benefit only? No, look at verses 8 and 9. The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Clearly, David has more in view than just himself. He's got the good of of God's people on his heart. He's he's grasped one of the major themes of of the entire Bible, that God blesses his people in order that they might be a blessing to others. He makes mention of himself here as the anointed one. Now, that's not to say, hey, look at me, I'm the anointed one. He's remembering, um, I've got a lot of people depending on me. Right? If the leader of the people gets swept away with the wicked, well, then all the people are vulnerable. So, Lord, help me that your people might be helped. Is that how we ask? Are we crying out for mercy just so that we'll be okay? Or are we asking for mercy so that we'll have opportunity to help those around us? Do we, do we ask for blessing to have it or to be a channel of that blessing to others? Prayer is that God would be glorified and those around us would be blessed in our asking. Father, would you help us? Would you make our turning to you, our crying out to you, with Open and empty and lifted up hands, would you make that more of an impulse for us, a, a knee-jerk reaction, than looking to other people in other places for help? Would you give us great confidence in our asking? Would you make us mindful that our cries are always for mercy? And that we're only turning to you and regarding you because of the supernatural work of grace you've already done in our hearts. And Lord, in our asking, make us others focused. Make us mindful of the benefit that you desire for us to have to those around us. Hard to think of anything more Christ-like than that.